0: Don't talk too much. Just talk a little bit. You don't eat much. You don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening.
1: This is the Just Listening podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. Uh, this is Just Listening. I'm Eric John. And before we get into it, let me tell you about Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club has been making the best artisan soda in the world, bar none. It's not even close. Go to YachtClubSoda.com today and find out for yourself. You can order one of a many different flavors, uh, blue raspberry, root beer. They've got uh, orange cream, grape, strawberry Uh, The list goes on and on and on. You will not be disappointed. Uh, If you're having a party, if you're having a cookout, if you're having a get-together, go to YachtClubSoda.com today and order some. You will not regret it. Okay, on the show today, uh, I've been obsessively watching this YouTube channel. It's called Real History, R-E-E-L. And uh, basically, it's a a channel where um, the host... Uh, Jared Frederick, Professor Jared Frederick, uh, goes through, he watches movies, and he points out different historical facts about the movie, uh, little details, uh, talks about the things that the movie got right and what it got wrong. Uh, He's an assistant uh, professor at Penn State Altoona um, and is the author of a lot of different books, including uh, Hang Tough. Uh, the World War II letters uh, and artifacts of Major Dick Winters, uh, who, of course, is the main protagonist of what I think is the greatest thing ever put on a television screen, uh, the show Band of Brothers. So, uh, Professor Frederick, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I am really excited you're here. I, I have to say I've been obsessively watching your videos on YouTube for the past few weeks. And my only regret is that I wasn't able to watch all of them before uh, you you came on the show today because they're fantastic. Uh, When did you start uh, actually start making these videos?
0: A friend and I, Andrew Collins, started the show about two years ago, and it actually started as a pandemic project of sorts because we were both pretty much just bored out of our minds being stuck at home and movie theaters were closed and a lot of historic sites were closed. Uh, and so it it started on a rather impromptu basis. Uh, and the interesting backstory is that uh, he, his wife and I would often get together in the days before the pandemic to watch historical films and I would give off the cuff Keller commentary. <laughs> and he said, we should just put a camera in front of you and make a YouTube channel out of it. Uh, and so. Uh, 45,000 subscribers later, here we are. It's
1: amazing. And, you know, I, I, I've, you know, when I started watching your earlier videos, I think there was one where uh, uh, Andrew popped on and talked about how you guys were getting close to a thousand subscribers. And so, of course, I had to go look and I saw that you were, you know, at around 45,000. And I just get so pumped when I see uh, success stories, when I see people doing well and just growing and growing and growing. Um, It just, it, i feed off of it and i start getting excited and it's like now i'm watching your subscriber total and i want to see it get to a hundred thousand because i love what you guys do um you know and i was thinking uh, you know the last few days especially as i knew you were coming on i was trying to think about what it is about your channel specifically that i that that i love so much because there's you know there's other channels and other people that do historical takes on movies and stuff but you know, I, I think that you do such a great job of being very specific and to the point and clear in what you're saying. Um, the editing and I, does Andrew do all of the uh, editing?
0: He does. He is the the man behind the curtain.
1: Well, he does a great job because the pacing is so good. Um, you know, and it's and it's just just because I do editing myself, I I can kind of notice it, but it's it, it's so good. And I think also it's really obvious uh, to me as someone who really enjoys your videos that you, you not only love history, but you also love cinema. Um, and I think a lot of times other historians, you know, they, they come off sometimes a little resentful of filmmakers um, because obviously they get a lot of stuff wrong. Right. And they uh, they don't always uh, are not always truthful to the actual the history behind it. But you do a really good job, I think, of appreciating that, hey, you know, there's a movie here uh, that is that is to be made. Do you remember your first movie going experience as a kid?
0: Uh, yes, I do, actually. What was uh, it? The, the first movie I saw in theaters was Hook Hook? The oh, man, it's one of my movie. favorites. <laughs> yes, that was my my first big screen experience. Wow. And uh, speaking to how our, our lives come full circle at times, I Uh, Just yesterday, got back from a two-week Band of Brothers tour across Europe where we traveled in the footsteps of Easy Company, as is depicted in the iconic HBO series. And we were joined on the tour by two actors, including James Matteo, who plays Perconti in the series. Uh, But a decade before that, he played one of the Lost Boys in Hook, uh, and so, uh, life is strange sometimes in that way.
1: And he, you know, he's so good. And obviously when he was in hook, he was, he was a kid, you know, but he was yeah. so good in it even then, you know, and, uh, obviously he's so good as Frank Perconti and band of brothers. Did, did you, did you ask him at all about hook?
0: Oh yeah. A little bit. And he had yeah. some great stories, uh, I to share only, about I can that. only I imagine. Mean, he, he pretty much categorized himself as a young punk who was just creating <laughs> trouble on set <laughs> uh, so uh, he, he had some some colorful stories associated with that.
1: That's amazing. Well, man, what a great first movie to go see because it's so grand, you know, and, um, you know, and I, I actually gave it a second viewing uh, not that long ago because I have two kids now. And I'll tell you, watching that movie as a parent, it's like a whole different experience watching that movie as a parent, man. Yeah. It, it's, it really hits you. And it's uh, I think it's kind of underrated. I um,
0: agree. I agree.
1: Now, I, I know that, uh, of course, I watched your four-part series on Gettysburg, and I definitely want to get back to Band of Brothers. I want to talk mm-hmm, a sure. lot about that and a lot about Major Winters. Um, but um, I just finished watching your four-part series on Gettysburg, and you mentioned uh, the impact that that film had on you. Can you talk a little bit about, about that as well, just the the impact that movie had on you as a young, history-loving person?
0: I saw that movie when I was about age seven, And I'd say it was probably the spring when I was in first grade and I had watched it at my cousin's house and it it became a ritual of sorts when I would go to their house that we would watch snippets of it. Uh, But it was the following summer when my parents actually took me on a vacation to Gettysburg and I was able to correlate what I had seen on film to what I was seeing standing in the actual place. And I think that was the first time that I realized that cinema could be used to convey a real-life story in a really dramatic manner. And the fact that that movie was largely filmed on the actual battleground just added to the authenticity and the power of that story. And so after that first trip, that really became the point of no return for me and going there became an annual summer pilgrimage and of course now i go there multiple times every year uh but it, largely in part thanks to that movie by the time i was in fifth grade i knew i wanted to be a historian and i know that's true of a lot of my colleagues who I ended up working with at Gettysburg National Military Park many years later. And it's true of many Civil War historians of my age and generation that it was really that movie that was the spark for them. And so I think think this speaks to the inherent good that historical movies can do. Uh, Historians like to go poo-poo on them uh, often. Uh, But really, it it often takes these elements of popular culture to get people interested and to serve as a gateway to these broader studies and understandings of the past.
1: Yeah, and I've I've heard you talk about the the line sometimes that has to be walked, uh, especially in your video on the Patriot, which, Mm. of course – um generated a lot of interest in the American Revolution, but of course as at the same time uh, was was mostly fiction. Um, and uh, there's so obviously so much in that movie that is not historically accurate. Um, and you know, do you feel like these movies um, in general, do they do more good? Uh, for in terms of um, generating interest in history than bad? I mean, because obviously there can be misconceptions that people get about history from these movies as well.
0: I think you really have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. I think if you look at movies like Glory or Gettysburg or Saving Private Ryan, of course, there are historical flaws in them. There are liberties that are taken. Uh, In regard to Saving Private Ryan, I I think the first half hour of it is phenomenal. I think it's a really good condensing of the assault on Omaha Beach on D-Day. After that, though, I think historically the movie completely jumps the rails. I think the rest of the movie is completely detached from reality on many, many levels. But when you look at the power that it had and getting people interested in history. And furthermore, the impact that it had on encouraging World War II veterans to finally open up and share their stories with family members and the public at large. I think we can recognize that movie as one of the greatest historical forces in the realm of historical memory that that we can recognize. Um, So those are a few examples where, despite historical flaws, these movies can do inherent good. On the flip side, if we go back a little bit further, and if we look at movies like The Birth of a Nation from 1915 or Gone with the Wind from 1939, these were incredibly popular movies that had incredibly negative impacts on race relations and a recognition of proper history in the United States uh and when we when we look at something like the birth of a nation i think we can very feasibly make the argument that it delayed the civil rights movement as we know it by a half a century Uh, and so you really have to look at it on a case-by-case basis i think using a broad brush saying all historical movies are good or bad in one way or another uh is, is perhaps uh too broad an interpretation
1: Well, and I think that's where you kind of come in and and you're really doing a service because, uh, you know, I saw a lot of the videos you've watched where I thought for sure something in a particular movie was 100 percent accurate, then finding out it was completely fabricated. Um, Of course, you told the story about um, the woman at the Gettysburg uh, National Historic Site there um, thinking that one of looking for one of the characters graves Uh, in the cemetery and you having to break the the hard news that that character wasn't real. Um, so I really do think you're doing a great service because I'm also just a huge lover of history and you brought up saving private Ryan and I'll tell you someone else who wasn't too impressed, um, with the history, at least of that movie. And that's George Luz. Um, I, I had the pleasure of seeing his son, George Luz Jr. Speak, Mm. um, recently. And he told a story in his presentation of taking his dad to go see Saving Private Ryan merely, I think, months before he was killed. Um, And at the end of the movie, uh, (laughs) of course, in a very funny way, standing up and saying, what the hell was that? (laughs) That was his commentary. Um, And I think uh, more than anything, I think his his issue with it. um, And I'm going to ask George about this next time I talk to him um is was was the the um depiction of the paratroopers in that in that movie um private ryan being the obviously the the most prominent one mm-hmm. um but let's talk about band of brothers because this is a show that i think about on a regular basis it had a huge impact on me um can you explain to the people listening just how much on a different level this show was in terms of getting the history right compared to other things that had been done before it.
0: Mm -hmm. This was the great challenge that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg accepted in tackling this story because after the success of Saving Private Ryan, the two of them teamed up and they were looking for a story that would make for good television miniseries miniseries content. And uh, initially, from what I recall, Uh, they were going to adapt Stephen Ambrose's book, Citizen Soldiers. And each episode was going to follow a different man within a different unit, Uh, which would have been interesting to see in hindsight. Uh, But Tom Hanks sent Spielberg another one of Ambrose's books, and that was Band of Brothers. And he made the argument, rather than doing... A somewhat episodic or uh, a bit-by-bit bit story as they were originally envisioning uh, Hanks suggested why not chronicle a single unit throughout the entirety of its service in World War II? and of course nothing like this had ever been done before on this scale and I think where it succeeds and why so many people find it endearing even almost a quarter of a century later is that you really get a sense of character development there's a true affinity that is attached to the real life characters as depicted in the show Uh, but here too of course there were going to be inherent challenges because hanks had to convince the veterans of some of the artistic liberties that had to be taken. He said, we're going to put people in situations where they never were. We're going to have them speaking with people that perhaps they wouldn't have interacted with. Um, We're going to give them weapons that perhaps they didn't carry and so on and so forth. And he says, that's just the nature of the beast. And at first, after having read some of the script, Major Dick Winters was rather upset about some of the artistic and historical liberties that had been taken. And Hanks had to assuage him uh, via phone conversation. And he said, look here, Major, if we get 12% of this story right, people are going to think we're geniuses. So we're going to shoot for 17%. And winners really appreciated that sort of candor and he acknowledged that there were going to be liberties that were taken uh but the man at the helm tom hanks was trying to do this story justice he was trying to genuinely give it justice and i think how the filmmakers did that effectively is that they really relied upon the veterans themselves they sent the veterans of easy company surveys they were sent out to be interviewed the screenwriters and the actors were connected with the people depicted therein and i think that's why it has such a long shelf life and i think it's why it has been gauged so well in the realm of historical memory uh and so of course here too uh there were things that were changed, there were circumstances that were altered. I get into a lot of those in our 10-part breakdown of the series. Uh, but all in all, I, I think we could make the argument that it's it's the finest war film ever made.
1: Oh, I mean, I totally agree with that. And if, and if you're listening, you have to check out uh, Jared's 10-part breakdown on Band of Brothers because it's so comprehensive and it's so enjoyable, and you learn a lot. Um, of course, one of the one of the biggest mistakes in the show is is the story of Albert Blythe. Hmm. Um, are you surprised? And just to catch people up really quickly, basically, um, they have this gentleman uh, dying several 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 years earlier than he actually did. Um, in a, in a post a postscript at the end of the episode. Are you surprised that they haven't gone back and just changed that postscript?
0: I'm not surprised that they haven't. I think they should. Um, I think all things considered, that would not be something difficult to fix. I know. It seems like Um, it
1: seems like an easy fix.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, they could they could easily go in there and do that and just upload the new version on HBO Max. (laughs) I know it. Uh, And alter it for uh, future versions of the DVD or Blu-ray that that might be released. Um, Because it's genuinely misinforming people about the the fate of this uh, individual soldier. Uh, But I've seen it in documentaries. I've seen it in films. Uh, Filmmakers are very defensive about their products. And acknowledging... Uh, wrongdoing um, is something very hard for them to accept, um, and and I, I've seen it in person and um, a number of occasions. I'm not going to name anybody individually, but um, some very well known filmmakers that I have encountered when they've been called out at public forums or interviews or things along those lines, uh, they 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 tighten up and they get rather defensive, and so uh. Nothing that I or any other historian will say uh, can outdo the power of Hollywood. So
1: and I can understand that as a creative yeah. person myself, I can totally understand that. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's a certain element of perfectionism that you have to fight against as a creative person because eventually you have to finish the product. Um, and I know a lot of the actors have said that during the filming, you um, the the writers were always were very willing uh to change things on the fly. Absolutely. If they got new information during the production. Yeah. Um, whether it was something as simple as, oh, my character didn't smoke or my character was actually in this room when the you know, when the mutiny um against yeah. um Sobel was happening, um yeah. which is amazing. That is something that I just I also know, never happens uh, during productions. Um, So that is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, and I'll say this in defense of the filmmakers. When you have a a 10 hour film that has hundreds of characters with hundreds of speaking parts, it's going to be impossible to get absolutely everything right. And additionally, too, and, and some of the actors that I just had conversations with in the past weeks have acknowledged this. This series came out really before the internet came into full bloom, and it was a lot more difficult to to trace burial and service records for a lot of these people. And so they really had to rely on the memories of many of the veterans, and understandably so, the memories of the veterans were sometimes going to be faulty about who died and how long they survived and so on and so forth Uh, and so in some ways given the context of the time it's completely understandable uh with the readiness of information though in our modern age um it seems like less forgivable an offense
1: and of course you know like like you said the memories of these veterans um as good as as good as they are uh, amazingly um you know many of these gentlemen were into their early eighties at this point, mm-hmm. I think when this film was made um, and you're right, it is sort of like a 10 hour film. It, you have to kind of look at it that way. It's enormous. Um, you know, one of the instances where, um, you know, it was the the veterans memories that were just slightly wrong was the, um, the very famous scene of George Luz uh, crawling towards a, um, a foxhole um, that had muck and Pentella in it and the foxhole exploding um, his son told me um, that, uh, and not just me, it was a whole audience of people, um, that his, his father had told him about this story and that um, and I think he had written about it, actually. Um, and the way the story actually went was that he, he had a choice to make, either to go into their foxhole or his own, and he chose his own, um, and that he found them the next morning. Um, mm. In the foxhole, uh, buried there. So, again, it's like, a, you know, it's, is it exactly right? No, but did it capture yeah. the spirit of the horror of that situation? Like, absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about Major Winters um, specifically, if I can, because you wrote this book, an amazing book called Hang Tough, uh, the World War II letters and artifacts of Major Dick Winters. Uh, and you wrote it with uh, a- another gentleman named Eric Dorr. Um, What was it like? Going through all of his private correspondence, I'm sure it was extensive as well.
0: When Eric, my co-author, first approached me about. Co-writing a book about Dick Winters, I was incredibly apprehensive at first. First and foremost, because I thought, what could possibly be written about this man that hasn't already been written? By that point, he had been featured in the book Band of Brothers. There had been a biography, a really great biography by Larry Alexander, uh, that had come out, and Dick had co-written his own memoirs as well. I uh, that's three books on <laughs> it's quite a this bit guy. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, a lot more than what your average World War II veteran will get in his lifetime. Uh, but I started reading through this correspondence, and I quickly recognized that they offered an insight. They offered a view of this man that had not really been captured in the other books. And I think what made it unique is that this material had not been written in hindsight these weren't memoirs that were written decades after the fact they were written in real time as the war was ongoing and what made it even more unique is the fact that he was writing these letters to essentially a girlfriend um, or at the very least a very intimate pen pal and. Within those letters, he exhibited a degree of vulnerability that we don't see in the series, most certainly. He's a very stoical, paternalistic figure in the series, uh, who is depicted as never doing wrong, uh, never having doubt, Um, and really the, the only time where we get a sense of that vulnerability is in... The crossroads episode where he encounters the german sentinel off guard and kills him on the spot Uh, that's really the only part where in my mind we get a sense of the true dick winners of how how he coped with what he went through and what what became apparent in this correspondence is how war changes people uh he starts off as this very eager, optimistic, gung-ho enlisted man. And even though he remained supremely confident in his abilities as a fighting officer through to the very end, he most definitely became jaded by his experiences. He suffered from psychological anguish. You really get a sense of how he had to cope with post-traumatic stress You gain perspective on his frustrations of the inefficiencies of the military, especially by 1945. And I felt that a lot of the previous books kind of only brushed up against these topics sporadically. Uh, And so I, I think there's a lot to be said for just letting a voice of the past speak to us in an unfiltered way. And I thought that was the great alluring element that drove me to co-write this book about Dick Winters.
1: Did you ever have the chance to meet him before he passed or was that too long ago?
0: Unfortunately not. Not. Uh, he passed away in 2011. I was still actually in graduate school at the time, and so this was uh, before I really got into heavy writing and research and public engagement. Uh, but I'll, I'll say this, though. I certainly feel like I've come to know him, um, having explored his letters, uh, having been in his shoes uh, from a literary perspective uh i i really feel like i've gotten to know the man uh and hopefully that shows in the book
1: well i mean he, he he's an amazing human being you know and uh even at, uh, for someone like me as a quaker who's you know very much a pacifist um you know i'm, I'm very much an anti-war person um, mm-hmm. I find him fascinating. I think that there's so many qualities about him, just as a as a as a human being and as a man, that um, are, are really worth learning about, um, and are he, he's a great role model in so many ways. And so, whether it's just his leadership capabilities, but his his loyalty. The way that he um, looked after and cared about the men, even years and years and years after the war, right. um, keeping all of their correspondence and their own files and he sort of a historian in and of, you know, in and of himself, just the way he seemed like he was able to keep track of things and, and keep records of everything. Um, you did have a chance, and you mentioned this in one of your videos of meeting uh, Brad Freeman on uh, mm-hmm. multiple occasions. Um, what did he have to say about Winters?
0: Oh, Bradford Freeman loved Dick Winters. Absolutely adored the man. And one of the really interesting things about Brad Freeman and uh, Brad Freeman was the last surviving member of Easy Company. He passed away about a year ago. He it was the absolute last of the last of Easy Company. And uh, Bradford always referred. To his former commander, not as Major Winners, but Mister Winners, and he said the reason that he did that is because he he really came to know him better in the post-war decades, rather than during the war itself. And uh, Brad would say when he would reflect on when Winners would come to visit him at his Mississippi home, and they would sit on the front porch, and they would reminisce about the war, and then they would get together at reunions, and they would kind of break away from the rest of the crowd, and they and their wives would go out to lunch together. Uh, he was he was a real salt-of-the-earth guy, um, as humble, quiet, and dignified a, a person as you could come across, and uh, his his admiration for winners was just completely unbending um he saw this man not as a superior but as a genuine friend Uh, which once again i think uh, says a lot not only about winners but the camaraderie that he shared in the decades afterward
1: you know there's it's it's really is appropriate i think that that they're known as the greatest generation, I you know, and uh, it occurs to me also. I think you and I are around the same age. I think you might be just a little bit younger than me. But we're we're really the last group of people who uh, got to know these these guys it's in true. real life. Yeah. Um. I'm, you know, I'm assuming it was uh, your grandfather uh, fought in World War II, as did as did mine. Um. And uh, you know, I I I think about them often. You know, I, I we own a family bakery here in Rhode Island, um, which is where I work to this day. And many of them worked there, you know, when I was younger. Um, Mm. and so I got to hang out with them quite a bit, you know, in a, in a setting that was not exactly, um, you know, it wasn't like the public was, you know, they they were, they were themselves, let's put it that way. They were fully themselves, um, all the time. And what do you think it was that made that generation just so, um, so great, for lack of a better term,
0: yeah, and you know, and I'll say this too, and and I don't say it in any sort of degrading way. Um, I, I I tend not to use the phrase "greatest generation" because I think that it gets us caught up in a sense of misplaced nostalgia in a way. Sure. Because after all, this was the deadliest war in in human history, and I, I think if we. Wrap ourselves around the flag too thoroughly in the history of the war that that it tends to allow us to overlook a lot of the widespread suffering and depredation um, of the time period. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll add this to that. Um, I like a phrase that Louis Zamperini, the famous Olympic athlete, and later became the topic of the book and movie unbroken and you know and he went through the worst of the worst of the world war ii era and he's and he, he didn't like the phrase greatest generation either he called it the hardiest generation
1: i like that that's that's good i like that. that that actually makes that does make more sense actually
0: because when you think about the fact that they went through the great depression that they had grown up being accustomed to not having things, they were accustomed to suffering, they were accustomed to not having enough food and being cold and having to do a lot of really hard, demanding physical labor in the name of survival, that those struggles, both physically and emotionally, prepared them to fight what would be the greatest war in recorded human history. Uh, And so that's how I tend to look at it. I think they need to be viewed as a unique generation, as a special generation, uh, a generation that went through more than what any of us could ever um, imagine to see and endure. Um, But I, I really like what Louis Zamperini said, and I, I like to call them the hardiest. Generation. I like that too. They, they, and I, they were I able do, to do more with less in many ways.
1: I like that too, and I, I think it is much more descriptive, actually, and accurate. Um, my grandparents, um, you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, well into their sixties, seventies, um, would have like three pantries full of dried goods, just stocked up. You know, I mean yep I, I I like to think that wholesale clubs you know like a Sam's club, I uh-huh. think they catered to this this group of people because um, they were always afraid I think you know that that there something might happen where they had to go months without right.
0: food and um, and I've, I've had many interesting conversations with my students along these lines too and I, I asked them, you know, for many of you who have older great grandparents, You know, unfortunately, when they pass away, they probably have a lot of stuff in their house. That's right. And I I said, if if you have a family experience like that, raise your hand. Like two thirds of the class raises their hands. And they always wonder, why didn't they get rid of anything? (laughs) I said, well, when you grew up in the 1930s when nobody could afford anything, then you grew up in the 1940s when everything's rationed there's a tendency to keep things because you never know when you might need those things, if shortages should come about again. And in moments like that, I really see light bulbs turning on above my students' heads like, Oh, that really makes sense from a generational perspective. Um, and so it hope hopefully in moments like that, we're able to uh, engender a little bit of empathy. (laughs) <laughs> across Absolutely. the generations,
1: you you and you mentioned um, that you know calling them the greatest generation, and, and I think you're totally right. You know these were not perfect human beings. Um, right. You know they were not saints uh, by any means, um, and it, of course, World War II was the greatest human calamity in world history. Um, and there's a there's of course a very very funny moment in Band of Brothers where um, Bill Guarnier, um calls Winters a Quaker. Uh, As a pejorative, Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, Winters wasn't a Quaker, but I am a Quaker, and so Mm -hmm. um, I that perked my ears up, and I thought it was very funny, Uh, very funny indeed. Um, And of course, you know, Quakers throughout history have been very anti-war, and you know, Mm -hmm. during the Vietnam War, and you know, the the Second Iraq War, you know, found themselves with lots of supporters, I'm sure, in their stance. But during World Mm -hmm. War II, um, this was an immensely Uh, popular war, for lack of a better term. There was a lot of support for it. Uh Um, Can you talk, and you're from Pennsylvania, right? So can you talk a little bit about the Quakers during World War II, what they were doing, um, what the general consensus was about them at the time?
0: Yeah, and to my knowledge, um, in the buildup to World War II, many of the Quakers were, by and large, isolationists because they had seen the carnage that had been inflicted during the First World War. Uh, And they certainly weren't alone in their desires to keep out of a Second World War. Uh, But once Pearl Harbor was bombed, uh, any anti-war fervor very, very quickly dissipated. And a lot of Quakers uh, joined the likes of the American Red Cross and other charitable organizations that could assist on a humanitarian level. Uh, This offered arenas for service that would not involve picking up a weapon and using it against a fellow human being. Uh, Quakers would often put CO on their uh, draft forms, which stood for conscientious objector and in some cases conscientious objectors as such could work as medics or medical personnel or serve in a staff capacity that would not place them immediately on the front lines and so there were many avenues for national service for people who were religiously opposed to killing fellow human beings and i'll just uh circle this back to winners very quickly uh, because although he was not a quaker uh, he was very proud of the fact that his mother came from old mennonite stock Uh, so another realm of the anabaptists in in pennsylvania that are uh, likewise peaceably minded and that was a huge element of his worldview. The idea of working hard, having a connection with the land, being neighborly. And I think that sense of community, I think is perhaps a good word, becomes very reflective of his attitude that he has with his men. He takes on a very empathetic, fatherly view. In regard to the men under his command, and I think that undoubtedly goes back to some of the Mennonite sensibilities that were instilled in him as a young man by his mother in rural Pennsylvania
1: what you you know you mentioned that you just got back from Europe in um, and, and I'm sure you've been many times um, or over there. Um, what is it like retracing those footsteps? I mean, what, you know, and is it, is it special every time you go? Is it, is it a different experience every time you go, you know, explain to people what that's like actually being there in person and being able to touch things and see things and smell things yourself.
0: It's often a surreal experience and it's, it's hard to define unless you've gone and done it yourself, and I encourage all of your listeners to do that if they have the time and the means to do so. Uh, But it's much like my first trip to Gettysburg as a child. Once again, you're able to connect the dots between these famous places depicted on film and where the real-life events happened on these far-off battlegrounds. Uh, And so it's an incredibly meaningful experience whenever i have the opportunity to walk in the footsteps of these individuals and i've i've had a very busy travel year i've been calling it revenge travel uh after (laughs) having been cooped up (laughs) and all of these uh, travel limitations over uh recent years uh and so uh over the past seven months I've traveled to Guam, Iwo Jima, Sicily, and Italy, England, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, and Austria.
1: <laughs> That's quite a trip.
0: <laughs> yes. I've, I've done more travel in the past half year um, than in all the previous years of my life. Uh, but I, I came to the conclusion I'm still relatively young. I still have good knees. I still have good lungs. And now's the time to travel rather than when, when I retire because I can go and see and enjoy a lot more now versus 30 years from now. Um, so I'm trying to live in the moment for a little bit. What are Uh, some
1: historical sites that you haven't, um, been able to visit that you still really, really would love to see, uh, in person?
0: Well, my grandfather fought in the Hurtgen Forest, uh, which is uh, along the Western German border. And it's this uh, very forbidding and often overlooked uh, battleground that was very, very costly. Uh, and that place is on my bucket list. And uh, next year, I hope to also uh, take some of my students On a trip to Hawaii to see Pearl Harbor and some of the other historical sites there but I have a very very long list of historical places that I would like to visit I haven't yet visited any of the battlegrounds associated with the Eastern Front of World War II Uh, I would love to uh, see the other bookend of uh, the fighting in Europe and the Mediterranean, and perhaps go to North Africa someday, that poses some more difficulties logistically than going to Italy or France. Right. Um, but there's uh, I've never been to Egypt. I would love to see the pyramids. I've never been to China. I'd love to see the Great Wall of China. There's there's so, so many places. Uh, but I think I think we should all be curious. I think we should all have a little dose of adventure in our lives. And as, as Mark Twain once said, if more Americans were tourists, and if more people went and traveled the world, it would completely eradicate racism and institutional barriers as such, because it would lead to a greater degree of understanding and unanimity. And I'm a firm believer in that.
1: I think it certainly makes sense to me. And, you know, one thing I've always experienced whenever um, whenever I've encountered anybody who um, almost very specifically doesn't speak English, um, there's almost naturally this sort of warm um, connection that you have because you don't have that ability. Right. That ability to communicate is is limited to Mm -hmm. facial expressions and whatever else you can do. Um, and I've always found that um, in those situations, people are sort of almost instinctually very kind and nice to each other, usually, because there's all that all the other stuff is sort of stripped away. Um, and what you have is this just other human being there. Um, and just like you said, you could never you probably could never visit all of the great historical sites in one lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't possibly watch all the movies that have ever been made either. Um, but are there, what are some of the films that you're looking forward to reviewing that like as, as for fans of your channel, like me, um, that we can kind of look forward to you, um, putting out there, uh, in the future, in the near future.
0: Oh, well, we, we, we've accumulated a very, very long list of films, uh, uh which in no small part is driven by viewer suggestions. And then Andy and I have to determine uh, which of those movies actually has an audience <laughs> <laughs> Right, because, uh, we love imparting knowledge and we love doing the show, but on the same time, we have to do a little bit of fan service as well. And we have to may- weigh out the, the work with the demand and, uh, will people actually watch uh, an episode on, on this movie or that movie? And uh, we are constantly surprised. By what is popular and unpopular <laughs> uh, but we are looking forward to reviewing some upcoming movies that are coming out in the next few months. Uh, 2023 has a great lineup of movies between now and the holiday season. Uh, just uh, well a few hours before I joined you today uh, the trailer for Ridley Scott's forthcoming Napoleon Bonaparte biopic uh, was released. Oh, really? Didn't uh, I, I, well, yeah. I
1: can't wait to check that out. Who's yeah, playing it, Napoleon?
0: It, Joaquin Phoenix. Oh man, that sounds like <laughs> that
1: sounds like perfect
0: casting so, to me. It will be quite the experience. I wow, have and it'll be epic, grand battles, and it's. I think it's really a throwback to a lot of the historical epics of the 1960s and the 1970s, but. Uh, we shall see how and it nice to see Ridley Scott um,
1: getting back into the historical epic game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I loved your, your video on Gladiator was uh, was awesome. It was a two parter, actually, right. I think, if I remember correctly, that was awesome. Um, the The video you did on Apollo 13 was so great. And um, you you did it with this engineer. His name was what was uh, his name?
0: Don, Don Freeburn?
1: Don Freeburn. Yeah. And that was so cool to have. And you've done that a few times. You've had people come in different special guests. Um, I think you had a nuclear physicist come on um, to do the Oppenheimer tr- uh trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone listening, definitely go check out Jared's and, and Andrew's channel. It's called Real History. Uh, it's spelled R-E-E-L. Real History on YouTube. Um, it's, it's such a fun watch and trust me, once you watch one of these videos, you're going to, you're going to start, you're going to go through the entire catalog. You're going to watch all of them because they're fantastic. And, um, uh, professor, thank you again so much for joining me where just direct people who are listening, where they can find, uh, more about you, um, you know, aside from the YouTube channel, um, and where they might be able to buy, uh, one of your books.
0: My website is Jared, J A R E D Frederick.com. And there you can find links to my various books and projects.
1: Great. Thanks again, Professor. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to your, your guys' next video.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: This is the Just Listenin' Podcast.
0: I gotta go. Go where? I mean, we just got I got that thing. I gotta go.
1: With pizza artist Eric John.
0: Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time.
1: Huh? Please like, share, and subscribe.